Please uh, take your Bible. Let's turn to uh, the doctor's gospel, Luke's gospel, uh, chapter uh, 22, and uh, like to uh, read it. I've entitled uh, my sermon today, History's Greatest Crime. History's Greatest Crime. I'd like to read the narrative, uh, picking it up actually at the end of chapter 21, and notice uh, 37, we'll read the first 13 verses of chapter 22 of Luke's Gospel. So Luke, uh, 21:37. And every day he, that's Jesus, was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and he lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover, and the chief priest and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was one of the number of the twelve. And he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray uh, to, him, to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And so Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. And they said to Jesus, Where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, uh, that's Jerusalem, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you, Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Well, history's greatest, greatest crime. Well, human history is certainly not a pretty story. Would you agree with me on that? It is not a pretty story. It's a narrative that is filled with horrific acts by men, and not just men, uh, by women as well. And uh, a glance, a quick glance at your, at your, used to be your daily paper. Now it's three days a week around here, and most of you don't even do that, or maybe you're online, I don't know. And for an old newspaper guy and a guy that loved papers, it's, uh, it's a transition for me for sure. But a quick look at a daily paper today or days gone by simply reveals the fact that our world is broken. Dr. Uh, Barnhouse, uh, the, that eloquent preacher of another day in Philadelphia, used to say about the daily newspaper, same old sin, just different faces. Not, not bad really not bad. That's the world we live in, and if you don't think it is, you better stay indoors. Better stay. It's dangerous out there. There's danger of them, their hills. Remember that cartoon there? I always like that. That's true. That's our world. It's a broken world. And yet, when one thinks about all that, and you consider the crime, and considering what was the greatest crime ever committed, uh, uh, to me, uh, there's only one there's one and only one that stands out as the worst. It's the, it's the day that men killed the Son of God. 
They killed God in flesh. They murdered the Son of God. He was, incidentally, the only innocent one to have ever lived. He was the only one who truly never deserved to die, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The wages of sin is death. He never did sin. There was no sin ever found within him. He was that holy child by birth, and he never did sin, according to, uh, to the Scriptures. Uh, as God, it was impossible for him. Dr. Luke uh, presents in his gospel the certainty of things believed. Do you remember that? That was his whole purpose in writing the gospel of Luke. In verse, chapter, one, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 4, he writes, so that we might know the absolute certainty of all of these things related to Jesus, he tells us how, in fact, this greatest crime in history uh, took place. Now, you should know something, that this week that we're talking about, and we've been spending a long time here, as Jesus made his way to Jerusalem, now he's there all this week, riding in, remember that, on Palm Sunday, weeping and praying over the city of Jerusalem. He cleanses the temple. He teaches the people. He rebukes the leaders. He talks about his coming. And it's all within those final days leading up to Passover and the, and the unleavened bread. We'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, this is, in world history, the most important week in all of history. Now, you think, well, what, what might rival that? You say, well, my team won the Super Bowl. That was certainly a great week. It doesn't even come close. How about in, in July 4th, 1776 in Philadelphia? Doesn't even come close. You say, well, what about D-Day, the June 6th, right? 1944, right? Well, that was, doesn't come close. You think, what was the greatest day, the greatest week in human history from the beginning until the, it ends and it will end? This is the week in God's redemptive plan when he so loved the world that he gave his son, and now it's coming to the climax. He's going to give his son as sin, as the Lamb of God. On this very week that had been foretold for thousands of years, it was happening this week, and in this very week was the greatest crime in all of history. Some of you watch, maybe and I get a kick, out of, and maybe you'll understand this a little bit, but there's a show on, uh, it comes on at 10 o'clock at night on uh, CNN or something, yeah, American Greed. Do you ever watch that? Ever, anybody watch that? We're the only ones that watch that. Oh, okay, four of us, six of us. Uh, I watch it and I go like, it's unbelievable, another Ponzi scheme, unbelievable. That's close to home to some of you, you know, I know. Holy macaroni. I go like, I, well, I've got to watch this just because I feel like you know, I may be taken too, you know. I mean, if you figure their schemes, <laughs> unbelievable. What the crimes that go on in high levels and, and people that are pretty bright that get duped into it. I go like, there's no hope unless God helps us here. What a terrible thing that. That's nothing compared to the greatest crime that we're talking about. In fact, you're going to discover in our passage, uh, we get a glimpse of the invisible war. You're like, what war? That was a beautiful duet of peace, you know, and comfort that we just, war. there's war going on. It's the invisible war from creation to the end. 
between heaven and hell. And we get the curtain drawn back a little bit, and we get a glimpse of it here. Why? Satan is going to make his move. He is going to make his move. Some of you chess players, do you like playing chess? John, do you like some of you guys like playing chess? And not? We're talking about the, the, the fatal check, right? And he's hoping mate at this point. Queen to the king, he's going he's gonna to nail in this invisible war. We just get a glimpse of this. I mean, in Luke's gospel, we see Satan at the temptation. In Luke 4, where he tempts the Lord three times, and he leaves until a more convenient time. And in all of Dr. Luke's writing, Satan never appears again. He, he has his demons and so on, and we see the curtain and the movement of Satan and the different things that he's trying to do through his demons. But now time is short, and Satan is going to make his move on the great chessboard of this invisible war of redemptive history. And he is going to go for the kill, if you will. That's what we're going to see here as two plots unfold on the day Jesus was murdered and I'm here to tell you that the greater one destroyed completely, utterly, and finally the lesser. Two plots unfolded on the day Jesus was murdered, and the greater one is going to utterly destroy the lesser. Now this is a great example of Joseph's words. I've often read these, studied these, taken these to heart, and thought about these words. Uh, where he said to his brothers, remember that in Genesis 50, verse 20? Now that Jacob has died, the brothers are nervous because Joseph is prime minister now, and now daddy's gone, and now is he going to be vindictive to the brothers that tried to kill him, sold him into slavery in that early years in Egypt for about 12 years in prison, and all that took place there. Now Joseph is going to get us. We know it. They, they were, they were, they were uh, paranoid in their hearts. And so uh, uh, Joseph gets wind of it, and what does Joseph say to his brothers? He comforts their hearts, and he says in the most loving way, it was a form of Jesus, really, to them, you meant that for evil. You did. You meant to get rid of me in jealousy. But God meant that for good. I'm saying to you today, here in our text, that was a little bit of a type, uh, a pre-type, uh, pre if you will, of the ultimate case of that. For we're going to see two plots here where Satan is making his major move. He's going to use a human vessel, one of the twelve, right, for the death blow to go in for the kill. That certainly meant it for evil, right? Get rid of this one. The religious leaders and the, and the chief priests, get rid of him. They meant it for evil, but it's the ultimate example that God was going to use this for the ultimate good. And so take heart in there. Sometimes when you're abused and hurt, you go like, well, why did God allow that? Why did God allow that in my life? The, the, realize there's a greater hand that allows that. I remind you of Job, remember? Uh, Job could not be touched by Satan until God said, this far and no further. And in that, God was going to be glorified in Job's life through that suffering and then at the other end of that. This far and no further. God sets all the boundaries, not Satan. 
And I love the old theologians that say, don't ever think they're equal. God in his omnipotence, he's almighty God, and he's created Satan, this fallen angel, and for a limited time, for God's glory, really, and they would say, he's nothing more than a cosmic pimple. And that's too big when you compare it to Almighty God. So don't get the idea you got this strong God and this strong evil on that side, and oh, what's God going to do? No. It's a wrong idea completely. Satan exists even now, moment by moment, because God allows him to. He could just, and he's gone. Be that quick. But in the redemptive plan that will bring the greater glory to God, he allows him to continue. And here on this day, in this, the greatest week of human history, the greatest crime is being perpetrated. Now, I want you to note, and I love Riken's writings on this, uh, and I borrowed the, uh, the, his, his example of the comp- conspiracy and then the counter-conspiracy, the two plots. The first is uh, the conspiracy. And in my words, Satan makes his move to murder Jesus in verses uh, 1 through 6. Let's just reread it again. Now, the Feast of, of Eleven Bread drew near, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put Jesus to death, not really for, uh, the idea is they feared the people. They were hindered from it because of fear of the people, the crowd, the populace. Then Satan entered into Judas. Let's just stop right at that point. When, when was this conspiracy in which Satan is going to make his major move now? It was in the middle of the week of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Sometimes uh, they called it just Passover. This is the major feast of the year. If we can trust the writings of Josephus, there are probably two million Jews in uh, uh, plugging up that, that, that city of Jerusalem and the surrounding environment for this week of festival. It commemorated uh, the Passover. You remember that in Exodus 12, where in Egypt, the Passover lamb, they slayed the lamb, they put the blood on the lintel. Often we'll refer to that at the Lord's Supper. Those that were in the house were kept safe. And then, uh, but those where there was not the blood, it pictures Jesus, the shedding of his blood and covered by the blood and nothing but the blood, they were safe, Right? And then where there wasn't blood, the firstborn, even the Pharaoh's household, even among the animals, death. Death everywhere except in those pockets of safety covered by the blood, right? So then after that, that evening, uh, when the cries went out, they left then Egypt. Remember that? In haste. They didn't uh, have time to let the, the bread rise. Now, I love it when Faithy makes her breads and all that kind of thing. And part of the key of that is the yeast and let it rise and all of that. Well, they, they, they didn't have time. They had to get out of town, get out of Dodge, right? So they, they got a couple of million people leaving Egypt that night grabbing stuff, and the bread was not leavened, of course. It was, it was like saltine crackers, I guess, right? Something like that. And they grabbed what they took, and they left town with it. And uh, God would use that as a reminder uh, to them for years and years and years on his protection and the inauguration and beginning of the, their life as a nation of Israel. And so for years and years and years, the greatest feast of all was this Passover. That occurred. And the next, that seven days, was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Will they remember getting out of town without raising the, the, and how God cared for them, not only that week, but all the 40 years. Imagine that, in the wilderness. 
And the manna stopped right on the day they entered. How about that? Timing is the backbone of the Bible. Timing is the backbone of your life and mine in which God works. If you want to see God, look at the details. And so they celebrated this unleavened bread the days after Passover. It was a great time of feast and celebration and, and, and all of that that's going on here at this point. Jesus had come to, on Yeshid, had come to Jerusalem this very week, according to the plan of God and the timing of God, his planning to give his life. He was the Lamb of God going to be slaughtered now, and people were flocking to hear him. He would stay at night on the Mount of Olives, in the morning cross the Kidron Valley, go into the temple area and teach, and people were flocking. We read that in verse 38 of the previous chapter. Every morning they're flocking there, they're flocking. Why did he stay on the Mount of Olives? We don't really know. There's a whole series of caves there, and they would sleep in that, and housing, lodging, probably full in the city. But some would suggest, and I think maybe so, so that uh, his whereabouts was unknown, and they couldn't kill him. Where is he? We don't know. He's maybe in one of the tunnels or caves. They couldn't find him. They wanted to kill him. We've read that repeatedly here. And so every day, he's the populace. The people are crowding to him. He's teaching the Word of God, the Gospel. He's teaching about you know, all of these things. He's warning the people, their religious leaders, who are of, of, of their father, the devil. And so they're... And, 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 and just to stop here at this point, if we too are wise... You know, we will listen to him. They listened to him in that. And that's, that's what the text, in verse 38, and they came to hear him. And if you're wise, you'll do the same thing in your life. You will listen to Jesus, and it will change your life. There's nothing that will change your life but the reading of the Word of God to the Spirit of God. I know, it changed me. It changed me. I mean, people uh, in high school still say, like, whatever happened to that guy? There's only one thing. The Spirit of God opened my heart and filled me with the Word of God, and it changed me. And I love every day feasting on the Word of God. I can't get enough of it. I have to draw myself away from it. You know, like, okay, i got to do other important things, like uh, brush my teeth or something. I don't know. But I just love the Word of God because I commune with my Father in heaven, and it's changed me. It gives me victory over sin and my propensity to sin, and like you too. You know, and if we stop listening to the words of life, we're going to depart from the path. You know, it's the Word of God. It's the Word of God. And wise men and women uh, listen to Jesus from Genesis through Revelation. And, and that God changes us through the Word of God. It's quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it's manna for our soul. And it's honey and sweet and, and beautiful. And, and listen to Him. Every day as you journey, and you are, if you know him, you're making a journey. You're going to heaven. You know, you might as well keep reading the book and get an idea of what it's about, what it's going to be like, you know. And God will bless you and fill you and fill your heart with joy and grace every single day. The earlier in the day, the better if you can. It will prepare you for what's coming in the day. How about that? Well, B, there are something else going on, though, here. Okay, the people are flocking. The leaders hate him. You know, it's not all hunky-dory. There's something else. And it reminded me of that crazy movie, There's Something Strange in the Neighborhood, right? What movie is that? I can't remember. Aha! I want to find out. <laughs> That's right. I think I remember Jonathan like that. Ghostbusters, there's something strange in the neighborhood. All is not well here, right? Uh, in Camelot. 
There's a whole intrigue and conspiracy that's under here, and you see it here, and, and, and Luke's going to pull back the curtain here. There's something strange in the neighborhood. Uh, the leaders hated him. They sought to kill him. Uh, these men were in position of great power. The chief priests, that was a perversion. She only had one. The leaders, the Sanhedrin, right? The Pharisees, the scribes. Scribes are lawyers. You know, all this, <laughs> that they hate him now. The priests now, they despise him, right? They, uh, and, uh, and, and yet what? They were, they were constrained. You would know, think, like, all these are against him. What, why didn't they just go execute him? Ah, uh-uh, the invisible hand of God right here. No, they couldn't. They felt the, the pop, there'd been a, a riot. Uh, I saw last night that the Zimmerman trial handed down a verdict. And a lot of Americans have been watching that, and, and, and I sometimes wonder about the media. They seem to kind of suggest the idea of rioting if it doesn't go one way or the other. You know, kind of like crowds in Miami and Los Angeles, and I certainly hope not, and we prayed that that wouldn't be the case. But uh, that's a glimpse of what these leaders were afraid, that, that uh, if they arrested him publicly, going to the temple court, he's teaching and blessing the thronging, rest him right there, the crowds would have went crazy. And there had been a huge riot, especially with a couple million people there, and, uh, and so on. And so they've got a real problem. Uh, they want to carry out and execute him. They can't. God is holding back the invisible wall here until the exact moment that's already been predetermined. So they're men in position of power, but they're powerless to act upon their hatred. And it reminds us that God reigns, and he rules in the affairs of men and women. Never forget that. Even at this, they would have killed him years earlier if they could have. Well, the crowds of people, millions, would riot. They're afraid of the outcome. They should, in fact, they should have been the ones that were welcome. Here he comes, the promised one, the Son of Man from Daniel, the one we've been looking for, the seed of the woman. You would expect that. As they're in the midst of celebrating life of the nation, Passover, they're working on, on a scheme to murder the Son of Man, the Promised One. How horrible is that? Spiritual evil in high places. And I'm sorry to say, if you read church history, and if, you, if there's any truth to it, there's a lot of that. Men and women, they're given high places of authority and all of that, and they hinder the work of God. They block the work of God. They end up in pulpits and in seminaries and you know, teaching anti-biblical things and robbing the faith and the hearts. It's filled with that, this, this satanic counterfeiting and all that through, through men and women who, like these leaders, spiritual evil in high places. Well, see, their diabolical dilemma is solved. Help suddenly arrives from a completely unexpected source. You can see them huddling. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And all of a sudden, holy macaroni, this is our lucky day. Can you see it? Knocking on the door is one named Judas Iscariot. What? What's this? What's he want? He's one of the twelve. One of the ones that was picked by Jesus even. This is our lucky day. You can see their whole thing. It solved their great problem, right? They got an insider now. Some of you have been reading about Edward Snowden, right? An insider with high clearance and, and all of that and releasing information around the world, making, really making uh, 
making uh, our government look really seedy and and uh, even even our civil liberties and all that. I've had some fun talking to Stephen about that and other. But uh, uh, an insider with high clearance, that's Judas. I mean, he's, he was right up there. Three years, he was a disciple of the Lord. Knocks on the door, and he came to, uh, to them uh, to see if he could be of help. A most unlikely co-conspirator, he's one of the twelve He's a spy from within the organization. Judas would spring the trap. He'd solve the problem so that he knows where the Lord's going to be, so they could arrest him privately, so there would not be a riot. Oh, our lucky stars. You can almost hear him thinking that, saying that, and, uh, and so on. In the text, when the text says in verse 5 that uh, they were overjoyed. It's the word kerar in the Greek. Filled with joy, rejoicing. I, I have on your sheet the religious leaders cackled with evil delight. Cackled was a word my mother used to use a lot. They would stop that cackling in there. Don't hear that word too much. But they're cackling away. You can, and, and you know, what a sad thing when those that are identified as part of God's people cause wicked people to laugh and to rejoice and uh, it's so sad to see that. And here, they're in their darkness of their evil hearts, Judas, one of the privileged, knocks on the door, offers to give the inside information of where he might be. And uh, they, they are ready to party hardy uh, because their hearts were filled with darkness. Wow. Here we see men happy to commit the greatest crime in the history of the world. And yet, it's not unknown, right? You know, you know that this was prophesied. We know the apostles talked about it in Acts. But in Psalm 41.9, write that down. Psalm 41.9 and check that out. Because there the psalmist writes using bifocals. Remember that, how we read prophecy? The near and the far. Even my close friend whom I trusted. Uh, raised his heel up against me. And that's Judas. It's looking down the road from the psalmist day to Judas in what he did here, prophesying this as God gives hints and shadows and four announcements through his prophetic utterances. Well, here's the betrayer now. The betrayer is Judas himself. He had such privilege, such privilege being so close to Jesus you know, you think about that. One of the exclusive 12. You know, it's a reminder that, uh, you know, spiritual position and even spiritual privilege is no guarantee of what really is going on in the heart. There's really no guarantee. You and I, our hearts are so desperately wicked. Who can know it? We can't even know ourselves, the Bible says. But we can go through the motions and and appear to be something, and our hearts be so far away. That's one of the great lessons of Judas that God would have for us. And so it should motivate us, Lord, examine my heart again daily and throughout the day, and may I forsake sin, even as a believer, Lord, that I might not be a Judas. Well, what motivated him? You say, you know, what, what motivated this? He comes and offers us inside information. There are a number of common suggestions as to what might have motivated him. 
Let me give you a couple of them. Uh, the, the Gospel uh, of Judas. How many of you have ever heard of the Gospel of Judas? Don't look in your Bible. It's, it's, it's not there. And, and rightfully so that it's not there. We, we knew in church history from Irenaeus and others, they referred to this Gospel called the Gospel of Judas. But we never, we didn't have it. It, uh, it, it disappeared from history. And until the 1970s, when in an Egyptian tomb, uh, it was discovered uh, by thieves, and they sold it to some antiquities dealers, and then it was resold again and resold again. We, and we have a, now we have this, a copy of this, this uh, infamous uh, gospel, so-called, called the Gospel According to Judas. And in that, it's so interesting to read it, the writer of that attempts to vindicate Judas. Can you imagine that? Telling uh, the story that he was the closest to Jesus, and in the last week or two of his life spent a lot of one-on-one time with Jesus, and, uh, and that he had, he had uh, conspired with Jesus that he would do this to help Jesus out. Now, here's the thing. Uh, it was written by... Uh, uh, the one who was a Gnostic. Now, that's a 50-cent word. John, the beloved, writes about the Gnostics. It's, it, was a Greek, it was a Greek philosophical religious-type group that felt in their, in their view of life that the spirit was good and the body is evil. And John wrote against it. And we know that that's not true because when God made us a body and soul, he said, it is good. It is good. And when we're redeemed in heaven, you're going to look like you do now, but far better than you do now. Thank the Lord for that. It's body and soul, material and immaterial. And the gospel according to Judas, uh, it was Gnostic, not a Greek word to know, or knowledge, a secret knowledge type thing that was heretical. Arrhenius denounced it. In fact, it was no gospel at all because it, the gospel ends. It doesn't even have the cross or the resurrection, and it's, it's really no gospel at all. But the idea in the, in the writing is that Jesus and, and Judas conspire to, to rush his death so he could finally put away this body and be pure and holy forever. It, it runs counter to everything else we know in the Scriptures. Counter. And it was bogus and false, and therefore it was rejected and fell off uh, the uh, historical scene. Well, some would suggest that's the motive. How about number two, disappointment with Jesus? That Judas was disappointed in Jesus. He could see, wait a minute, he's not going to be the next king here. He's not going to kick the Romans out. Oh, no, this is not what I was thinking. I thought we were going to be regal in his court, and he's going to finally have the day. But he keeps talking about a spiritual kingdom. He keeps talking about something else. He keeps on talking about dying. Oh, no. And some would suggest, well, his motive was he was disappointed uh, with Jesus. He was not the king that uh, Judas was hoping for. And I'm reminded, folks, now that many people in life uh, who even have made a decision for Jesus have disappointment with Jesus. And I've talked to many of them, and some that have gone far afield from where they have once said they were. And it started way back. I, I remember as a high school guy, a couple of people making professions of faith and, 
And I remember they quickly, it was uh, Matthew 13, the seed. You don't know how it's going to take root or not. It's going to bear life, fruit, or eternal. It'll just appear for a while and then be gone. And I can remember some saying, well, that's, that's not, you mean Jesus isn't going to make me healthy or he's not going to make me wealthy or he's not going to, well, that's not the Jesus I signed up for. You know, and it's like, wait a minute. We've got to bring our thoughts in the line with the, with the God who is, not impose my goofy thoughts on who he should be. And a lot of people do that. Be careful about that. This disappointment with Jesus as Savior is not what they thought, so they leave. The words, Demas has forsaken me, by Paul, having loved this present world, haunts through the corridors of time in the halls of the church. Demas hath forsaken He left. He left. Well, disappointed. How, some suggest, wait a minute, he was covetous. For 30 pieces of silver, he made the deal. What a paltry sum that is. It's shocking to see that Judas would commit such a colossal crime for such a small sum of money. Yet, you have to agree with me, it's often shocking what people will do for money. Covetousness. That seems to fit with a little bit of other things we see with Judas, especially in John's writing. He kept the bag, but he was a thief. John tells us, you know, uh, he complained about an ointment for uh, anointing of Jesus. Oh, that could have been sold, you know, for money given to the poor. But John says, no, he did it because he was a thief. So we know something about his, uh, his thoughts on, on, on money. And yet it's shocking. The love of money is the root of all types of of evil. It's not money, it's the love of money. You know, it's a, it's, it's a source uh, that I think I put on your sheet here. Remember, I, I, I do remind you that God names his chief competitor. Did you know that? Jesus said you cannot love both God and money. It wasn't God in the NFL, it wasn't God in vacation, it wasn't God in this, but it was God in money. God, through Jesus, names his chief competitor. Why? Money can be godlike. It can comfort, it can provide pleasure, it can be godlike in its provision, in safety and security, so-called, and it can, it's an illusion. It's monopoly money, never forget that. It's here and it's gone. Or you pile it up, and leaves it not knowing who will get it. Ecclesiastes, man, piles up wealth not knowing who will get it. And then it's all part of it. And so be careful about that. Uh, use money for things eternal. Don't love it. Don't worship it. Uh, the love of money is the root of all evil. Uh, contentment with godliness is great gain. Isn't that wonderful? God can fill yourself with his presence, and he can give you contentment. It's not in the next thing. Haven't you learned that yet? You get the thing, you play with it for a week and throw it in the closet. I don't care how big or little the thing is. That's just the way we are, right? What's next? What's and we try our hope and our contentment and our joy and our meaning and our satisfaction, Psalm 1611, is in the presence of the Lord. And we use what he gives us for his glory. He gives us contentment with God-likeness. Jesus, the text tells us, is great gain. That's where it's at. And Judas was not there, and, uh, and it's a daily temptation for us, particularly as Americans, because we can, we can betray our Lord as well. Uh, you say, well, when are we in danger of betraying the Lord? 
Well, let me give you a couple suggestions. You might want to write that down. When are we in danger of betraying the Lord, Judas-like? When we spend more time thinking about what we do not have than praising God for what we do have. We're in danger at that point of betrayal, of covetousness, and of gross sin. When we spend more time thinking about what we do not have rather than thanking God for what we do have. Number two, when we're in danger of of betrayal, when we want Him to do something different for us than what He thinks is best. We're in danger of betrayal. When we want Him to do something different for us than what He thinks is best. Danger. And third and last, when we think we are so strong spiritually that we could never betray him at all. Be careful on that. Pride goes before a fall. When we think we're so strong spiritually that we could never betray him at all, we're in grave danger. And Judas opens the door. He allowed his heart to be opened, and Satan moved in, using him to go for the kill. Remember, you cannot love both God in money. Well, now, how about the ultimate co-conspirator? Well, that's in verse 3. We see it's Satan himself. He's not an influence. He was an angel fallen. He is a person. Um, there is such a thing as evil. We live in a world, uh, there is evil and there is good. It's not all the same. Our friends who may be Hindu are all messed up. They have no basis for saying there's any difference between good and evil. It's, a, it's, it's, a, it's an inhumane way of thinking. You could go and kill somebody or help some little old lady across the street. It's all the same in Hinduism, in Buddhism, in all of these others. There is evil in this world that God has a plan that includes the evil, sinful acts of men and some angels for a time for his glory. And the ultimate co-conspirator is Satan himself, and he enters Judas, the text says. What does that mean? We don't really know. We really don't know what that means. We know what demonism is, demonic influence of people, the other fallen angels that do his bidding, but here it's Satan himself is going to now, because Judas allowed his heart to be open, if he didn't do that, uh, Satan could never have used him. You need never fear Satan. Just follow James 4. Submit yourself to God. If we resist the devil, he'll flee. Judas didn't do that. And so Satan is making his move. Here, Luke lets us see the invisible war between heaven and earth, between God and Satan. Judas is... um, as uh, happy as the leaders were, filled with glee, I have to tell you, Satan was far happier. For ever since the beginning, in his conspiracy, he has been seeking to destroy God's plan to bless his people. I mean, you, you read the scriptures, that's what it is all the way through. Uh, Adam and Eve sin, they're cast out. God promises a deliverer in 315. Uh, they give birth to two children, Cain and Abel. Abel is killed. Now what's God going to do? In his plan, he raises up Seth, Hebrew word for substitute. And the line follows that way. 
And we see in the pre-flood world, Satan trying to destroy humanity. If you, I don't know what you do with Genesis 6, but it looks like fallen angels cohabiting uh, with women, producing a, a, a perversion of humanity as well as wickedness and a lack of the seeking of God except for eight people. Noah and his family, and God said, it repents me that I made men. Except Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord by God's working in his life. He saves humanity, eight people, and destroys destroyed all the rest of the world. You ought to be somewhat thankful for the destruction because all of that carbon came from living stuff and you fill your gas tank up with it. The vegetation in the tropical lush that was here is all rotting in the ground. Cold, natural gas, uh, petroleum, it's carbon fuels. Carbon means it once lived. It is the marker for that which lived buried under a worldwide flood. Satan was behind all that. And you look, you trace it all the way through now. Now you're going through the, through the scriptures. You come to, uh, uh, they're in Egypt. They're in Egypt. And, and what? They're going to kill all the Jewish boys now. Kill them all. They're running all over the place. These Hebrew boys. And that's satanic, anti-Semitism. Except for Moses' mother and father. They said no to Pharaoh, and they protected their son. And, their, and God brought out of that the deliverer. And through history, attempting Satan to destroy the royal line, the Davidic line, to be destroyed. Even Herod finding out, wait a minute, this king is born. Kill all the boys in Bethlehem, trying to exterminate the possibility of this deliverer. It's been the plan of Satan all along. His great conspiracy has been thwarted at each step of the way. And now is his big move. He's going to, he came to him and confronted him with a temptation, and Satan didn't win that, and he left. Now he's making his move. It's the chess move on the board to kill Jesus and to end the hope in this conspiracy, this plot to end God's great plan and promise of a, of a Messiah, of a deliverer, the seed of the woman. And so the leaders were happy, but I'm saying to you, Satan was even far happier. You see, Satan is not omniscient. God is omniscient. Uh, Satan is created. He's very smart. He's smarter than you. He's had a lot of years to watch you. That's why you go like, does he know? Yes, he, he knows when you're weak. He's been watching for a long time. Knows when I am, right? He's smart. He learned. But he doesn't know the future. He knows the word. We see him trying. Oh, with Jesus. Oh, you want to quote the word? I'll quote the word. And he does that. It goes to Psalm 91, right? And, and that interchange of the temptation. Thwarted, thwarted, thwarted. Now he makes his move, and he couldn't be happier. Could not be happier. Now, Satan would not stop until he put Jesus to death. It's his big chest move. Wow. That's the conspiracy. Satan makes his move to murder Jesus. Oh, my. What about it? Is the plan of God going to end this way? Is this how it ends? Is this it? The intrigue in the universe? Oh, the mysterious ways of God. They're past finding out, aren't they? Some of you like to read mysteries, don't you? You like to read some of those whodunits. Uh, my mother's a great reader. She reads all kinds of things, good things. But, uh, and then working on several levels, uh, John Grisham writing. I read a bunch of those. And uh, on all their, the conspiracy, 
We discover there's another plot that's unfolded on the day that Jesus was murdered. And it was, a, it was a plan so great, it would utterly destroy, it would crush Satan and his plan. The second plot, the counter-conspiracy, Jesus' death was God's plan for our deliverance from eternity past. It was the plan of God that Jesus should come and die. It was not an accident. It was not an audible. It wasn't because, oh my, things went bad, and we didn't know it would be this bad, and now he's going to get killed. No. You see, here's the key point. Jesus was as determined as Satan that he would die. Both plots led straight to the cross. Now, it's an amazing thing, because you can think about Satan and Jesus all you want. I can't think of too many things that they would be absolutely, totally agreed upon. If you could interview him, say, so he's going to the cross, he's got to die. And if you ask Jesus, I'm going to the cross, it's the plan of the ages. I mean, for Satan and, and Jesus to be agreed upon the same thing is rather an amazing thing just to think about. And the intrigue and the mystery and the wonder of God to work at so many levels above this puniness of his created Satan blows my mind. Oh, the wonderful majesty, oh, the depth of the wisdoms of God. You almost end up in that Romans 11 passage again. Oh, and fall down at worship. I mean, what else can you say but just end up worshiping God who has such a plan of redemption? who takes the sinful, evil acts of men and even Satan, and he uses them for his glory. I tell you, it was the ultimate, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And so we see the counter-conspiracy, and, and I'm looking at verses 7 through 13, because now that uh, uh, Judas is constantly looking, it's a, it's, that's a verb in the, in the Greek, he's looking now for an occasion when he can report Jesus is alone, come and arrest him there. And now it goes on in the preparation for this Passover, this, this Last Supper we'll see next week. Then came the day of unleavened bread, verse 7, on which a Passover lamb would be sacrificed. And so Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go prepare. And they say, where? Now you're going to notice here, um, Peter and John are the ones sent. They don't know where it is. It's in the city. And uh, it wasn't known among the disciples. Why do you think? I, I think the early church writers are right. If it was well known among the disciples, Judas would have said, hey, hey, we're over here tonight. You know, arrest him there. I mean, it makes perfect sense to me. And the Lord, and through it, you can see providentially here working this counter-conspiracy, and the Lord is in control of all things. He would not be arrested. He would not be, allow himself to be killed until the exact day and when the lambs were killed, and not a second sooner. Not a second. You see, the control of God, uh, the control of Jesus through all the details, even here, while one of his insiders looking to give him So he tells Peter and John, go into the city when you see a man carrying a jug of water. Unusual. Usually the women carried the water and or servants. When you see him, follow him. I mean, it's kind of secretive. Notice this. In the house he goes in, you go follow him in the house, and the master, the despot of the house, go to him and say, the teacher needs uh, a room for the Passover, the head of the house there, and so the teacher. So we're, we're not sure, did Jesus make 
uh, previous arrangements, or was it just his utter sovereignty? We're not sure. And you can come down on either side of it. Either way, it magnifies the Lord. And you notice there's no panic here. He's not worried. He's not afraid uh, at all. Uh, yet he knows exactly what's coming on the exact time. The counter-conspiracy Jesus' death was God's plan for our deliverance. This time it appeared that Satan's scheme would succeed. But there was something he did not know. At the same time he was conspiring against Jesus, God was operating a counter-conspiracy that would crush Satan and bring salvation to all the people of God. He would provide, Genesis 3.15, the head wound. Satan would heal, would wound his heel. That's a wound that would be the suffering on the cross, but it would not be fatal. It wouldn't be the death blow, ultimately. But in that, he would provide the head wound and crush Satan and defeat sin and be the death of death for God's people forever at that same act. You see, Satan, he were agreed. He's going to the cross, but he's going to go on the exact moment that, uh, that he has already decided. This, I say to you, is the real Passover plot. It's, uh, it's the greater plot from the eternity past, the eternal plan of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to crush Satan through the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus is in control even during the evil days. Note even his very practical preparations to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. You see, uh, he arranged the secret place so that Judas would not know where they would gather. He would not be arrested until he determined he would be killed as the Lamb of God on Passover and not before. He set all limits. And there is, did you notice verse 13? Uh, after the, uh, John and Peter went and they set and they organized, got it all set, and, and it ends, and they went and they found it just as... He told them, or just as he had said. That's a whole world of sermon right there. Just as he said. You see, Jesus never said, I didn't know. He knows everything. Just as Jesus said. It reminded me again of Psalm 103.19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens. His sovereignty rules or reigns over all. And even here, his control is to the glory of God. So in dying, Jesus conquers Satan. He'll be thrown into the lake of fire forever and ever. He conquers sin. He is the death, his death of, is the death of death for all who would believe, for us, for you. You see, Satan's plot and scheming ended at the cross. Ha, 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 I got him. He's dead. <laughs> Hell must have celebrated, right? God's plot was just beginning to unfold as it was the surprise to Satan, the death blow to him, and the end of sin, and the death of death. Raised Son of God with power, Paul says in Romans 1.4. It's glorious. Well... What can we say? Lessons for our life. Number one, marvel at the greatness of our God. Marvel, I say, because he's able to take the most sinful acts of men and women. In this case, and in your life and mine. 
stuff people do to us and use them for his glory. He is so amazing. Give glory to God and worship him. That's all I can say. I feel like all we ought to do is be on our face and worshiping the marvelous ways of God. Wow, what a God we serve. Number two, which, which plot do you belong to? I have to ask this for the gospel's sake. Which plot? You may choose Satan's plot. You're kind of born into that anyway. It leads to death, eternal death. Or, by the grace of God, you may choose the Son of God's, which leads to life everlasting. I wonder, which one do you choose? That's a good question to ask, folks. I'm asking you. It's a good one to take with you and ask others. I dare say most people have never heard the gospel. They're counting on us to share that wonderful news of the story. There's life in Jesus. And today, if you've never trusted the Lord as Savior, never, you know in your own heart, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Call upon him. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I receive you as my Lord and God. Thank you for dying in my place. I should have died. Number three, if God worked his purpose out through history's greatest crime, can I dare say, he can work them out in the little things of our lives, however big they may seem to us. I mean, did you ever think about, you know, we like, well, I got a big problem. Do you think any of our problems are ever big to God? Well, that's a big one Terry's got. That. I don't know. <laughs> it's like, again, you go back to the anthill, right? You know, the little ants on there, and the one's got a problem. He can't carry the big crumb there or something like a, oh, he's got this big problem. Like, <laughs> None of our problems are big to God. He's omnipotent. He's almighty. He can also work them out, the little things in our life, however big they may seem to us. Praise Him. And remember Romans 8.28. For we know that all things work together for the good. To those who love God, to them they are called according to His purpose. Number four, we are warned again by Judas' example to find contentment in His provision for us. We are warned. His life screams to us. Be, find contentment in Jesus and in his provision for you. And be careful to not love money and the things that money can buy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and use money and your resources for things eternal. And I tell you, you will be so glad you did. You won't get to heaven and say, oh, I wish I didn't do that. Or, Lord, I, gave, I think I gave too much to the gospel ministry. <laughs> You're going to go like the end of Schindler's List. Remember that? That moving uh, story with the Jews, and Schindler delivered so many of them. And uh, it, it haunts me a little bit because he takes off his watch, and he looks at it, and he said, I could have sold that or something and saved a few more lives of the Jews and the Nazi reign. I mean, it, you remember that? Some of you know what I'm talking about. I often think about that with investment in things eternal, in the ministry of the gospel. That's what we're a part of here at Grace. And number five and last, be warned. Or be warned by Judas' life. You too have great spiritual privileges. 
But it's no guarantee, is it? It's no guarantee. The nation of Israel is an example. No guarantee. That's what Paul tells him uh, in Romans. No guarantee that you are where you need to be spiritually, even though week after week I pray for you and pour over the Scriptures and teach them as plainly as possible. It's no guarantee that's how bad our heart condition is by nature. Daily examine your heart to make sure that, uh, that you are saved and where you ought to be. Well, the greatest crime was not the day Lincoln was killed. What a terrible day that was. John Wilkes Booth killed. It wasn't the day when, when uh, Oswell shot uh, Kennedy there in Dallas. It was a very sad day for sure. Uh, it uh, was a travesty indeed and others. Uh, history's greatest crime was on this day when Satan made his big move in this invisible war, this conspiracy. But take heart. God had a counter-conspiracy to the glory of Christ. Let's stand and be dismissed, shall we? Father, thank you so much for this uh, wonderful passage, and it feeds our soul. And, and I thank you, Lord, that you have a plan from beginning to end, and it's sure, and you're right on time, and you're calling out a people and I pray, thank you, Lord, for the privilege that you've called so many of us to be the servants of Jesus Christ and that we shall enjoy heaven forever. Well, remind us, Lord, that today is a day of labor and a day of work and a day of investment. And soon our days will be over. Even as we pray, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Use us, we pray. Be glorified in our lives, in our midst, and in greater ways that we can little imagine as we commit ourselves daily to you and to your work. Now make us a blessing, Lord, as we go our way, and, and a blessing to all that we should meet. And we'll thank you for the privilege now, in Jesus' precious name, amen. We are